Why is the times the times? It's like microscopic and exhausting there. We used to call the conference rooms the crying rooms because people would just like go in there and, and, and weep because they missed a beat. And if they missed this beat, they'd miss the next beat. And I saw sliding doors. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, October 17th, which means it's Media Monday with Puck's fearless leader, John Kelly. Today, we talk about Peacock, NBCU's streaming platform, which is still young, but already facing an identity crisis. And we dig into the culture of the New York Times, which is somehow both always changing and also not changing at all. John used to work there. He's got some insight. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy media monday everybody i'm joined as i am every media monday by john kelly the smartest man in media which is why we call (laughs) this media monday (laughs) john by the way i keep hearing that people like like, you know people in our in our business the biz like love the media monday so i think we we got a good thing going here it's all you peter hamby my favorite thing is talking to a media executive and, and hearing them steal uh, a, a line that you've uttered on this show. It warms my heart every time. Was it when I called marijuana the devil's lettuce? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't heard that one quite. Yes, that is one of your uh, one of your greatest coinages. <laughs> That's Katie's vernacular. Um, okay, I want to get into a little bit about what Dylan and I talked about a little bit last week. His some of his reporting on the New York Times, but. Um, I want to talk about Peacock, which is NBCU's streaming platform. Uh, Julia Alexander wrote about this a little bit last week, and we've talked about it a bit before. But, you know, Peacock has said they've passed 15 million subs. That's pretty good, you know, since they've been around for, what, a little over a year, maybe? But Julia's take is kind of like, 
what is this exactly? And obviously, lots of the streamers are dealing with this. Like, what is Paramount Plus? What is, uh, you know, Amazon? What do they want to be? What does Apple TV want to be? What's your take on what Peacock is versus what they set out to be? And is Julia right that they don't really have an identity? Yeah, well, I think the challenge with Peacock is it, is it set out to be something that was sort of smack dab in the middle and hard to identify, and then a year and so a year or so later, it's hard to know what it is because it did have this this murky uh, origin process. But I'll start by saying I am a Peacock subscriber. I subscribed to Peacock. I think in the middle of the summer because some golf tournament was on, my brother-in-law was over and I was like, all right, I'll do this. And I do watch Peacock for um, the NFL on Sunday nights, former Al Michaels Collinsworth broadcast. You know, it, it's an inexpensive streamer that is sort of betwixt and between. I think two things happened this last week. One is that the Peacock numbers were terrible to start. In fact, they actually stopped announcing at earnings calls what the numbers were. They, they, they really backed down. And, and then this time around, um, they announced it was 15 million, which is up from, from 13 million. And I think Jeff Shell appeared on CNBC to discuss it. He, he, was, he was proud of the growth, although as someone who, who sees what happens behind the scenes at, at DTC businesses and certainly saw plenty of it during my time in, in private equity, there are a lot of ways you can manipulate those numbers. You can easily buy that growth, although I, I'm not saying that they that they did that. That's about a third of what Paramount Plus is. So just to put it in perspective, Peacock is really, really small. The other problem more conceptually with Peacock, and I'm not trying to be a, a Peacock psychologist here, is that beyond the like business question of what is it, what is it creatively? Everyone knows what Disney Plus is. It is a constellation of these incredible IP stars from Marvel to the Pixar world. And eventually it's clear they're going to bundle ESPN into this and eventually they're going to buy out Hulu and, and that's all going to be just one gangbusters product. Netflix is crown-like quality and also just CBS, like on, on the internet. You know, it, it's all these uh, Florida, Bama, Shore type things that uh, I, you know, I, I hear the kids like these days. What is Peacock? Does it want to be a platform for these prestige shows like Bel Air? Does it want to get into the library and, and really marshal uh, all, all the extraordinary wealth that NBC Universal has? There's a ton of, of value there. It just doesn't seem to explain itself. One point that Julia made that I'm totally down with is that there's a world of kind of low-cost, Bravo-style, plus like Dick Wolf-style programming that seems like a very, very clear lane. Now, to be to be fair, Discovery Plus did try a version of that with not as much success, but I think it basically just tried it knowing, with the management team knowing that they were going to be doing a reverse Morris Trust merger with the Warner Media assets. So, you know, it wasn't going to be a huge priority. What is stunning, and then I'll, I'll conclude this uh, Peacock TED Talk, is if you look at the assets of what NBC Universal has, they're completely not demonstrated on the streaming platform. The Paramount Global product has a, has a similar sort of dislocation too. This is a failure of management, in in my view, to figure out how you actually move the company forward here. And, and this is just one final thought. I'm not trying to be provocative. Um, uh, our buddy Dylan, uh, Dylan Byers, who writes the first draft of, um, of Media Monday, we broke a story a couple of months ago about how NBCU was uh, contemplating some sort of merger or acquisition. It was unclear what the structure was going to be of uh, EA Sports and that Jeff Shell would move upstairs in that recombination or whatever the configuration was going to be, which made me think that the Roberts family was, was eyeing a, a different future for Shell. I'm not saying that Shell is directly responsible for Peacock. This guy's got an enormously difficult job and I, I don't know him. Everyone seems to love him. I'm sure he's a, a brilliant guy and these are, these are hard jobs. The core challenge here is, is moving the uh, the extraordinary IP library onto Peacock because they have so much value, they're just not distributing it. 
Yeah, I think another thing that just popped in my head about Peacock is like when it launched in 2020, this just shows how like fast the expectations of of streaming are moving. I mean, when it launched in 2020, they had some news programming on there. They were competing with, they're like, you know, I think trying to make another Netflix and Hulu and like creating mm-hmm. much of original programming. The reason we signed up was to watch that show Girls 5 Eva, which I really <laughs> like. It's like scripted sitcom. It's pretty funny. Like Tina Fey produced it. Um, but like it, it falls into, I heard this on another podcast. Like sometimes I feel like I'm a zombie subscriber to, to <laughs> Peacock. Like I forget I have it, yep. which is bad. I yep. mean, like I'm getting charged for it. But yeah, I mean, I'm like you, like you said, you're, you're, was it your brother like wanted to watch like a golf tournament or whatever? Yeah. Um, my brother and I are uh, don't listen to NFL gods like sharing a Sunday ticket subscription between us. So we can watch football on Sundays, and then he couldn't watch the Sunday night game you were talking about right. with Collinsworth on NBC because he doesn't have cable where he lives in Sacramento. And so I was like, "What about Peacock?" He's like, "Oh shit, I forgot I have Peacock, and I forgot Peacock has football." And so it's like again, like you're much smarter about the business side. I'm like from a consumer perspective, like on my scroll at the bottom of my Samsung TV, like the Peacock thing is like the seventh or eighth thing, you know, like it's the seventh or eighth app that you think about going to. And it's yeah. only there when you think about a show you haven't watched for a while and then back into the platform rather than go directly to the platform, like with Netflix, HBO and see what they're programming, what they're displaying to you, what they're targeting you with. One thing I do think also NBC has some like flagship IP. That is just like legendary, iconic. Yeah, imagine if you couldn't watch any of the Seinfeld episodes on Netflix and could only watch them on Peacock or Friends. Well, that's the thing. And so like, yeah, so like they are still dealing with the fact that you can watch Parks and Rec and Seinfeld and 30 Rock and Friends uh, like on these other platforms. And like once those things start to be on an island on Peacock, you know, then it starts to be a little more serious in terms of like people watching. Media Monday power users will note that um, there are some studios that own some of those uh, some of those shows and, and, and sold them to NBC. Weirdly, I have perceived some sort of like small player hating about the Iyer era now that it's ended. Maybe it was just like so unbelievably hallowed when it existed and the celebration was, was so enormous and, and the period was so magnanimous that that after he's left, that there's been some small murmurs of, well, you know, did he do this right? Which is, anyway, I'm just pointing that out. Um, I've, I've heard that in, in media criticism and it seems absurd to me. I clear my throat with it only to say that the the genius like masterstroke that he does not ever get enough credit for is that he made the decision years before they launched Disney Plus that he was going to end these deals. He was going to get rid of the free money and it was hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to stop allowing their content to be, you know, essentially leased on Netflix. And um, that's when you're serious about streaming. When you give up that easy money, it took Paramount Plus, Paramount Global, whatever it's called, Viacom, CBS, Paramount, um, years to do that. Bob Bakish has only done that in recent years. And they've seen the service has grown phenomenally well. Now, Paramount Global has got other challenges. I am surprised that they did not set Peacock up to be an asset where it demanded that kind of discipline. Because if you want to win in streaming, you have to have unique features. In some ways, it's uh, like the auto industry. You can't sell a Mercedes. You say it's basically just like a BMW, except we have a slightly cooler logo. Like it doesn't make sense. And there's no differentiation on Peacock right now. All right, John, we come back. I want to talk to you a little bit about the New York Times, where you used to work. (music) 
Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So, John, um, Dylan has some good reporting going about some personnel drama inside the New York Times, which is certainly not new. I feel like there's always personnel drama and intrigue at the Gray Lady. One of the points that Dylan was making in the course of our conversation here about how top-tier talent, Maggie Haberman, Michael Barbaro, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin, like people become stars at the New York Times depending on either some of their reporting and making a name for themselves by just kicking ass on the journalism side or because they're like experimenting and doing like really cool new stuff with new formats that builds an audience. But underneath that, Dylan is suggesting based on his reporting inside the newsroom that some people also want to be stars and they're not getting a shot at being stars. And like there feels like there's a like two tiers of talent there. Some of that is a function of our current internet moment and attention economy. Like you can obtain fame on social media for a variety of reasons and use that famous currency elsewhere. But also like one thing Dylan said too is, is it used to be that like, if you got to the New York times, that was it. That was the pinnacle. Like, you know, you would start out working in like Anniston, Alabama, and then move to like St. Pete times, and then maybe the Boston globe. And then you'd one day get to New York times and you were in the ivory tower. Why isn't that enough anymore? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, I, as you know, I could talk about this forever. Uh, I worked with Times for a number of years. And when did you work there? The first day was September 11th, 2011. It was the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And I worked there through the end uh, until 2015. It was the Jill era. In fact, actually, I, I was I started on her first day and she was fired about nine months before I left. Why is the Times the Times Ever since The Kingdom and the Power, which I read before I started, um, it's been a sharp-elbowed place. People have been focused on their careers. There is a personality. You know this better than I do. You've, you've worked with probably more of these people than I have. Um, it's the student government personality. It's the Tracy Flick personality. It's the, it's the don't-make-mistake personality. And it's like microscopic and exhausting there. We used to call the uh, the conference rooms the crying rooms because people would just like go in there and, and, and weep because they missed a beat. And if they missed this beat, they'd miss the next beat. And I saw sliding doors. Look, you talk about Barbaro. I think, oh, man, I may screw this up. And so don't at me. But, um, but I think that Barbaro got placed on the Romney beat in 2012. And like, the beat you got was everything, you know, because if your candidate didn't win, then what were you going to do? You're going to cover like national politics in, in Alabama. Like that's, that's going to go nowhere. Um, but the people who, <laughs> the people who did get these winning beats, um, they scored. I mean, it was, it, there was a sliding doors moment when Amy Chozik, who was the Hillary Clinton reporter and a homie of mine, um, covered Hillary for two years obsessively in a, in a sort of early, you know, that was one of Jill's actually sort of masterstrokes. And then Hillary lost and Amy left journalism. She's a screenwriter now and she's working with Greg Berlanti. Like she's, I mean, good for her, by the way, she, you know, went from a union to a, to a mansion, but there are fewer options 
in many cases, a whole middle of the industry was hollowed out, as, as we know, when we at Puck here were doing our darndest to, to try and repopulate it. But also, journalists are influencers now. I mean, people like Peter Hamby get recognized walking through Santa Monica in Venice. There's a market. And the Times, because of its unique nature as a bastion of journalism and, and as an institution that reports on presidents and world leaders, it has to enforce, and I'm not just saying this to be kind, I think it has to enforce certain rules of conduct so that it, it can't be accused of moral solipsism or some sort of shady stuff. And I think that if you're a journalist who has an extraordinary following and big opportunities, that's going to seem limiting. During the Trump era, a lot of people like turned an eye to it because there was a lot of money. I mean, if you were an Elite Times reporter, you were making your salary plus some um, through the cable networks. You're probably writing a book that was, you know, only going to be bought by people in um, in Washington, but that was going to make it a bestseller. And so you could triple your salary. I mean, truly, I remember having coffee with one elite DC journalist um, whose name I will not mention, but like top of the top. And their MSNBC contract was like much more valuable than their actual contract where they worked. And so that's, that's the market that is there. So... Um, it's not surprising that we see stars who want to give it a shot any, uh, elsewhere. And by the way, good for them. Like if the journalists don't create or recreate this marketplace, no one is going to do it for them. So when we, you know, Dylan, you, you got into this the other day, but like Ben, Kara, J. Martin Burns, these are people who want to discover their value and they need to do that because the market is not going to come to them. They have to make the market themselves. And the times will always be the times. The, the mode around the times is extraordinary. I, I would uh, hazard a guess that it is three to five years ahead of the Washington Post. And also it has the permission that the Washington Post or Politico will never have. Like the Washington Post is, is an, an august institution, of course. Again, don't at me. But like we're of the like derivative, all the president's men generation. Like we're always going uh, to view it at, at a certain level. But I don't think I've read a non-political piece in the Washington Post ever in my life. So it doesn't have the permission to be what the Times is. And now the Times, of course, is is Wordle and The Athletic and Autumn and Serial. You know, I, I keep thinking of it as the thinking person's holding company of the future. And that gives it an ability to be bigger than any single employee. Wait, so you never you never read the Washington Post Date Lab? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't get it, you don't get it. <laughs> Dude, I, I mean, I grew up in around the Washington Post, so I have read pieces beyond politics, but I was a, a home subscriber to read about how terrible the Redskins were for years. You get at something interesting, like people talk about like reporting stars and maybe star is the right term. I feel like there is like J-Mart, Maggie, like these are good examples of people who are really good journalists experts in their field, but also either by intent or accident have created followings for themselves on social media, know how to both get attention on social media, but also how just to write articles that get attention and pieces that get attention and like inhabit the internet, understand it, and aren't just like attention flamethrowers. Like there's a lot of people who like Absolutely. Masquerade, as journal masquerade as journalists who are just like you know, in it for the cloud and the retweets. Um, but they bring like reporting muscle to stuff, but it's also things like they're able to like find hooks that people care about. And then you have people who are really, really also really wonderful journalists, but they're doing things more sort of like by the book, you know, they're writing the 5,000 word article with the flowery lead and all the stuff. And maybe it turns into like 
a long reported series and like the New York Times sends out a push alert about, you know, some librarian in Oklahoma and why she's interesting. But like, it's not anything that's like survives on its own outside of the Times brand. And these reporters were talking about calling them stars. Like they pre-existed before they came to the Times, but they can migrate wherever they want. I feel like that is like a, a metabolism a just a cultural divide an internet divide that exists um but i don't know if you agree with that like there's just like a much more crass way of saying that would be sort of like the you know the tweety like crusty set inside the times who like you know strokes their chin like what was that meme with that dude um benjamin applebaum like like getting something grossly wrong in an interview with pete Buttigieg when they were doing the editorial oh, boards oh B- B- binyamin binya that guy represents one part of the times sort of like Ivory Tower, like New Yorker on safari, like learning about like America. Hmm, interesting. And then there's like the other, like the other person at the Times who just like is a grinder, is a creature of the internet, like likes to break news. Um, and like those two kinds of people are very different. Binya was also in my uh, in my class at the Times, um, where when they when you join, I may have told you this before. One of the first things they do at your indoctrination is. Um, they make you watch a reel with every time the New York Times has been mentioned in a movie, which is just sort of hilarious. And they tell you all the companies that the New York Times uh, had the opportunity to invest in early and refused to. Um, little companies like Coca-Cola and Google. Um, uh, speaking of sliding towards moments, I, okay, so I agree with you, but I think there's another element to this too, which is that um, the culture of the Times is very similar to the culture of government, where these are career public servants who, who either they believe in it or they're addicted to it, but and every time there's a leadership change, there's this cascading leadership change throughout the building. I remember when I, because I arrived when Jill was there, Jill appointed Sam Sifton to national, replacing so-and-so. So that opened up a, a role at, you know, the art section that John Lamon went to. And like, people literally were waiting years for these appointments. Susan Shira, who was a, a masthead figure for a time, I think now she runs the Marshall Project. She'd been there so long. I remember her telling a colleague of mine that that when when she was, you know, not a favorite child of one executive editor. She spent some years at the book review and in, in anonymity, just, you know, waiting for when things shook up again. I mean, that's crazy stuff. That's major career mileage where you're just waiting for a shakeup to change. I don't understand it. When people leave the Times, and this really is the heart of Dylan's story, it's the equivalent of when government people go to the private sector. Government is meant to be fair and equal and a policy-driven place where people like Binyak can wear suits and ties. And frankly, like, they're not working the way they would be at Goldman Sachs or, or BlackRock. And the markets are the markets. They're not for everyone. And they're brutal. Time is wonderful. It's fantastic. But one of the um, the downsides of the culture, and Dylan's gotten at this in, in a piece, not just the piece from last Wednesday, but the piece from Friday too, it can be a, an unhappy place for people too, because there is so much competition and there are, there are more journalists in the world than there are positions for them. And there are more New York Times reporters than there are elite roles. There are, you know, there's one, maybe two White House correspondents, and there are about 150 people in that building who think they should be. One final thought on this, not to like get pedagogical, but I wrote about this in the backstory over the weekend. We were curious in this, not just because we're, we're times obsessives here at Puck, but also this is the world that we're trying to build, you know, in, in partnership uh, with all these companies. And for a long time, there had not been a lot of uh, rethinking about how we compensate journalists. It's vitally important. They don't just perform a necessary duty in the culture, but it's okay to recognize that there's a arbitrageable opportunity in their influence. They're stars. They're multifaceted, talented people. 
I do think over time that the, the Times will will get more increasingly creative about how to how to think about this stuff. But in the meantime, it's in such an extraordinary position of strength that a, a generation of talent leakage is actually probably a positive thing, just you know, a, a, an exhaust pipe. All right, John. Have a great week. Thanks for doing this. All right, Peter. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.